Yeah. The key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was 9-11 uh, was itself. Welcome. This is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio, broadcasting every Friday evening right here on Revolution.Radio, the premier hardcore free speech network. Please support Revolution.Radio however you can. And you can support me, Kevin Barrett, by way of my website, TruthJihad.com. You can go there, find your way to my Substack subscribe button, and you'll get early access and free downloads to these shows and all kinds of other fun stuff. And what you will be hearing here on this show is definitely outside the Overton window. And it's pretty balanced. I'm not a hardcore pusher of any particular ideological position. I'm looking for the truth. And I want to hear voices that have more to say than what we get to hear in the corporate-controlled mainstream, whether they call themselves left or right. We're going to start out with a left voice in the first hour today, Dave Lindorf. And specifically, we're talking about two great articles he's published at Counterpunch recently and then uh, several months ago at The Nation about the nukes of August. And then in the second hour, I'll talk with two Trump supporters. Are you kidding? Yeah, no, my my good friends. Friend. You're from Madison, Wisconsin. Probably about the only two guys in Madison, Wisconsin who have anything to do with Trump. <coughs> Hello. Rolf Lindgren and Jim Fetzer will come on, talk about in Rolf's case, uh, he'll be railing against the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, and I'll probably be giving him a hard time, as I usually do. And then in the final 30 minutes of the show, Jim Fetzer reports on being stripped of his intellectual property by a Wisconsin judge last Wednesday. So should be interesting. Well, let's get going on the first hour. Dave Lindorf is one of my favorite repeat guests here. He's done fantastic work on a wide range of issues. He's done taboo work, a little bit taboo work on 9-11 and some pretty seriously taboo work on the Boston bombing. So we know he's not afraid to call it the way he sees it. And perhaps his, his most taboo work in certain respects is his revisionist take on the early era of the uh, the nuclear bomb period from 1945 to 1949. And uh, frankly, if you listen to, to this show, you'll find out why he doesn't think of Uncle Sam as the good guy during that period or any other period for that matter. And I think he's onto something. Nobody else is allowed to talk this way, it seems, in uh, corporate-controlled mainstream media. Even in the pseudo-alternative media, they rarely publish anybody as brave as Dave Lindorf. So it's an honor to bring Dave back on the show. Hey, welcome, Dave. How are you? Well, that's that's a nice introduction. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you. I, I, I respect your work. I mean, if they're, you know, I, I read people in Counterpunch and I read people in The Nation, and there aren't that many of them that I'm really you know, willing to tip my hat to. But, you know, you're you're there. You're you're doing great stuff. So keep it up. Um, so so the nukes issue, uh, you know, we're we're always told that American leaders uh, have good intentions, and yeah, maybe they make a few mistakes, but we're basically always the good guys. And of course, the closer you look at, at history, the less obvious that is. And this is especially true when we look at that early uh, nuclear weapons period. And, and so maybe you could, you could start out by, by talking about the nukes of August, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and 
how those were used to threaten the Soviet Union and then how the Soviets came up with their deterrent thanks to the evil traitor or uh, great hero, Ted Hall. Yeah, okay. Well, I, you know, one of the things is I, I have just written a uh, different version of that piece for the London Review of Books, and it's uh, the headline, I don't know what they'll use, but my suggested headline was, uh, the, it's still a mad, mad world, and then that's the kicker, and then the headline is uh, August 6th, 9th, and... 29th, three days to remember that shook the world. Now, there, because three things happened in August that involved a bomb. Two of them were the uh, two bombs on uh, Japan, you know, on the, on the 6th on Hiroshima, on the 9th, three days later on Nagasaki, both obliterating each one, obliterating a city that was not a military target. And then on August 29th of 1949, in uh, uh in the uh, um, Cossack Socialist Republic uh, Soviet, uh, was a uh, was the first Russian bomb test, which was a carbon copy of the Nagasaki bomb, <clears throat> and. Uh, what I said was that you know we we it, we certainly have had a, uh, a unlikely, seemingly unlikely hiatus in any use of a nuclear weapon in anger since the two bombs on Japan. But um, I said that the the uh, actually the capstone of that hiatus was the Russian bomb on the 29th of 1949 August because. That bomb made it so that the U.S. had to drop plans to uh, obliterate the Soviet Union with 400 atomic bombs, which was in the cards uh, with Truman and the Pentagon um, until the Russians blew their bomb off. So what what people don't know, I think this is this is the history that I've uh, found as I've researched this Ted Hall story. <clears throat> and that is that from the as soon as they finished the two bombs that they were going to use in Japan the first thing they did was on the on the day i just learned this on the day of the trinity test they were loading the hiroshima bomb the uh little boy um uranium bomb on a ship at a, on a pier in uh San Francisco to get it to the uh, uh, Tinian Island as fast as possible so it could be dropped on Japan before the Japanese managed to surrender. Think about that. You know, it wasn't that they needed it to get Japan to surrender. It was that they were racing to get it there on time so they could use it. And uh, and then they, they uh, you know, after they successfully tested the uh, very difficult and tricky to uh, to count on plutonium bomb that they blew off in Trinity test um, the gadget. Uh, they then flew that in pieces on by plane to Tinian in case they could use that too because they really wanted to use both of them. They wanted to test them in real war setting. So 
so that's the backstory. And then so, right so after, much for the, for the claim that the whole purpose of the bombs was to get the Japanese to surrender, which they never would have done otherwise. Yeah, yeah, that was complete baloney. I mean, Eisenhower, who was no slouch when it came to killing people, um, said before the bomb was dropped to Stinson uh, that uh, the bomb shouldn't be used because the Japanese are suing for peace and all they want is uh, a, a way to save face while they while they surrender. And uh, and he reiterated that uh, in his memoirs. Um, as told to, I can't remember who the guy is that was the, the uh, author of the of the memoirs, you know, the, the actual writer. But in the 60s, uh, before he died, Eisenhower um, reiterated that he had said that before the uh, before the bomb was dropped. He did not think that it needed to be used, and uh, and he stood by that all through his you know the rest of his life. So. Uh, you know, I'll go with that. I don't care what other crap people put out about, you know, how it was necessary to to get the Japanese to stop. Um, they were completely blockaded. They, they and it, it's a country that can't feed itself, that has no oil, uh, limited amount of coal, and uh, I mean, it's a volcanic island. It doesn't have a lot of stuff, and um, so. You know, when they were blockaded, as they were, they had no more navy. They had no more air force. We were dry, we were just doing milk runs to bomb cities, and they actually had to stop the bombing of Japanese cities because it was using up all the targets for the bombs, the two bombs. And uh, so, you know, I mean, they were they were finished, and uh, there wasn't going to have to be an invasion at all. They could have been starved out until they uh, surrendered. There wouldn't have had to be a beach landing. But, so, but then there was a concern that the Russians might try to take some credit. Well, for yes. Right? I mean, that was a factor. They they wanted the Russians to come into the war because they thought that would, you know, get the Japanese to surrender. But when the Russians wanted to come down the uh, Sakhalin Island and go into the Kuriles and take land from the Japanese, you know, then they then they wanted to get it over with quick because they didn't – two reasons. One is they didn't want to end up with a divided Japan like they had a divided Germany. And two, they didn't want the Russians to be able to claim they ended the war. So they wanted to drop the bombs and say, we ended the war. And they wanted to show the Russians what the bombs could do because really, here's the other part of the story. As soon as they finished those two bombs, both of which were handmade – they started working on how to industrialize the production of the bomb. Now, the, the uranium bomb is actually a real simple thing to make. Uh, the only thing that's hard to do is... Well, the, don't, don't tell us how to make it, because Donald Trump might be listening. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I won't, I won't tell you how to make it. It's, I mean, really, it's, <laughs> a grade school kid could do a drawing of how to make it, and it would work. It's a very simple thing. The, the basic point is that you take two less than critical uh, pieces of uranium, and they don't even have to be very shaped very well, and you put them inside of a cannon with one end, with the end plugged up, stick one half of it down at the plugged up end, and then put the other half in front of the charge at the other end and fire it off so that the, the uh, one piece of uranium goes flying at high speed into the other piece. And as soon as they hit, boom, you have an atomic bomb. It's very, very, very simple. Okay, one explosion... Uh, two pieces. Uh, it, it's just simple, but but plutonium is very tricky because it's um, 
when it's made in reactors, so you know it's a waste product, so it's easy to get. But it turns out that the 239 isotope, which is what you want, which it makes a lot of, when you when you take out the plutonium, most of it is unlike with uranium, where it's 0.7 percent is the fissile U235 um, that you have to separate out. The, in plutonium, most of it is the 239. So the, just the basic, what you pull out of the reactor is fissile uh, if you get enough of it. But the big problem with it is that there's a contaminant within it, which is another isotope. It's isotope um, plutonium-240, one extra neutron. And that extra neutron makes it a thousand times more fissile than 239. And so what they discovered was if if they had tried to do a gun-type bomb with plutonium, it would start fissioning before it even, you know, with a blast from a cannon, uh, uh, you know, charge, it would be already fissioning as it approached the other side uh, within nanoseconds, right? So therefore, it would blow the whole apparatus apart before the two pieces got together. So... Uh, and there was no way to separate it because it's it's they're so similar. It's one isotope; you can't chemi- chemically isolate them from each other. So, you know, and it's also hard to work with because if you get too many pieces together, they blow up. So uh, they had to come up with a different way of doing it, and it was very complicated. They had to have like 32 pieces of a sphere that would come together to make uh, a sphere and perfectly fitting, and they put a little uh, neutron um, generator chemical, which was uh, polonium, it, very tiny, inside that core of where those pieces were going to come together. Then there were tampers outside those, and then charges outside the tampers, and all the charges had to go off at exactly the same time. So, I mean, even within a nanosecond. So every wire had to be the same length, every electric wire to the igniters. Everything had to work perfectly. Then all the pieces would come together from all directions, compress the plutonium, which was a subcritical mass, uh, into a denser uh, unit, and it would blow up. And they did get it to do it. So only four kilograms of plutonium made that uh, bomb over Nagasaki, four kilograms. It's a tiny ball. Um, and so, you know, there we are that they had to figure out how to make that in a factory type setting, you know, on a, on an assembly line. And they did both kinds because the U S was able to make a lot of 235. They figured out, you know, they built the, the big project was Hanford and, and, uh, Oak Ridge because those were huge operations to, um, make U-235 mostly. Hanford was also making plutonium. So they were cranking this stuff out. And what Americans weren't told was that they were building bombs as fast as they could, even though there was no other country with a bomb. They even stopped cooperating with the British. So the British had to uh, do their bomb project on their own after 1946. The U.S. didn't want anybody else to have a bomb. And guess why? They, They saw their opportunity to be the world's sole superpower with the only super weapon. Oh, come on. And, you, you're, not, you're not saying that the American leadership would want to totally dominate the world, would you? 
That's exactly what they wanted to do. They even used that term. They wanted to have domination over the world so that they could they could tell everybody what to do. And that inc- that included Europe, you know, that but mainly it included Russia. And and what the plan was, Truman actually asked uh the Pentagon to tell him how many bombs do we need? to destroy the Soviet Union as an industrial state so that we can uh, not worry about them getting a bomb. And the Pentagon brainiacs, uh, you know, who were the new nuclear strategists, came up with 400 bombs. And uh, so they were cranking away trying to get them. And it turned out that by the time the Russians blew off that uh test on on August 29th, 1949, the U.S. only had 220 bombs, and they also didn't have enough planes to carry them yet. They were also, they they restarted the B-29 assembly line to start cranking out those planes, which could carry, uh, you know, these five-ton bombs, and they uh, were designing a bigger plane, the B-36, which had a longer range and a higher speed, had a jet engine and a, uh, and propellers. And so that could reach every place in the Soviet Union, uh, which the B-29 couldn't uh, and return. So they were, they were planning suicide runs for the B-29 that, you know, the pilots would take it to the center uh, industrial area uh, on the uh, eastern side of the Urals, drop their load, and then keep flying as far as they could, crash land, and try to get home. You know. Wow, so, so Slim Pickens would love that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, right. That's right. But I mean, this was not something Americans were being told. Uh, you know, a lot of Americans considered the Russians to be heroes in World War II, and uh, they had to work hard to convince a lot of Americans that you know the Russians were bad guys after the war. A lot of heavy propaganda had to go into that, and I'm not saying the Russians were good guys. Stalin was a monster, but uh, but you know, nonetheless, they uh, the Russian people and the Red Army sacrificed an enormous amount to defeat the Germans, and it was the Russians who beat the Germans, not the Americans. And of course, the we Americans the Americans have been very supportive of the Russians, giving them vast amounts of materiel through Lendley's. Yeah, but that was that was after we had first. Um, been dragging our feet getting into the war and going into, uh, you know, D-Day was very late, <laughs> right? And yeah. even going into Italy was very late. The U.S. sat back and let Russia get chewed up uh, by the Wehrmacht and didn't enter the war. What was that, 40, 43, late 43 or, or early 44? When was D-Day? Remind me. Uh, oh, boy, now, now you're... Uh... Um, confusing me too. <laughs> it was phenomenally late. Yeah. Uh, and and you know they weren't doing anything. They, I mean they were doing navy battles. They were doing a lot of fighting in Japan and in the Pacific, but they weren't doing much in Europe. And Americans were not getting killed in large numbers or, or even at all. The army. Yeah, yeah, D Day was actually June June forty four. So that was that was very late in the war. Yeah, look at that. It was like less than a year after that that the war was over in Germany. The surrender was like May 5th or something. So so less the US actually fought in Europe for less than a year. And we think of this four-year war, you know, it was not a four-year war for the United States in in Europe. Right. Was, well, the strategic thing to do, of course, was to let all the other guys destroy themselves, and so that then we come in at the end, clean up, and basically own the world. And yeah, that's that, that was it. Well, that was it. 
you know, let the British get smashed up and, you know, we would, we would be, uh, the big Navy and, uh, you know, we, the French were destroyed. Um, Germany was destroyed and the U S was picking up the pieces. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I get it. The guys that went over there and fought and died on the uh, Western front had a, had a tough fight, although they were fighting older men and boys while the, you know, the crack troops on the Wehrmacht were fighting a rear guard action trying to keep the Russians out of Germany because they were getting creamed by the by the Red Army. And that was the crack troops that went that were invaded in Barbarossa. So we didn't we fought the dregs of the German army on the Western Front. Right. And so this this all adds some context to what somebody like Ted Hall would be thinking when He's working on American nuclear bombs. Yeah, and, let me say a little about like, Ted Hall. What, Ted, so okay, Ted Hall. Who he yeah. Is. Yeah. Ted Hall was this brilliant uh, young man who, you know, uh, young, you know, or old boy <laughs> who, uh, you know, he, he went to college at Queens College at 14. Uh, he was admitted actually to Columbia at 14, but um, he, he got the highest entry score uh, Columbia had ever recorded. But uh, they suggested to his mother that he needed to grow up a little and he'd do better, uh, you know, socially. And so they told her maybe he should take a trip around the world, you know, with somebody and, you know, just get a chance to grow up uh, and then come back. And, you know, they didn't do that. That would have been 1939. You know, I don't think he would have completed the trip. But uh, at any rate, he uh, he decided to go to Queens. And so he studied physics and math and stuff at Queens and got really, really bored. His older brother, who was 11 years older and had done his, most of his educating, uh, of, of the educating of Ted until he went to uh, college, um, told him, well, why don't you apply to Harvard? And so uh, Ted applied to Harvard at 16 and got admitted uh, and was he started at 17 in uh, in uh, 43 as a junior at at 17 and uh, actually at 16 he was admitted <clears throat> so um so anyway he uh was studying physics at the premier institution with all these great physics physicists like uh Wendell Furry and and uh uh John Van Fleck uh and you know these all these astrophysicists and stuff and so then uh the Oppenheimer needed a, a lot of people because they were trying to crank out the, these bombs and it was getting to be 1940 it was late 43 they still were having a lot of problems figuring out how to do the uh the, the separation of the isotopes for uranium and, and how to make a plutonium bomb, and they needed more physicists. So he calls up Van Fleck and says, "Who do you do you have any young physicists? Because they'd actually vacuumed up most of the physicists in the country. The physics departments around the country were struggling to find people to teach classes because they were all working on the Manhattan Project, thousands of them. And and so uh, you know he asked if there were any young guys that were smart that she, he should hire. And Van Fleck says, well I I know uh, there's this kid uh, Ted Hall and he's brilliant. You could use him and uh, also Roy Glauber who was a month older than Ted and also brilliant, another New York um, scientist. And then 
a uh, and then there were two grad students, um, uh, Fred De Francis De Hoffman, Fred De Hoffman, and uh, I forget his first name, guy named Case, and the four of them got hired, and so they, on, in January they all took a train to uh, Santa Fe and went up the hill and uh, started work Jan- January 28th of 1944. And Ted was there for uh, the, through the end of the war. And what he, happened with him was he got put on the plutonium, plutonium bomb project and he ended up doing the hands-on tinkering to make the um, implosion system work. He was exploding it with a model using a, uh, a different... Um, element laudanum that wouldn't blow up the whole place, but they still had to hide in a tank when they blew it off each time um, to see if it would work. And what they were trying to do was get an even uh, even eruption of neutrons in every direction. That's what it would take to make the thing work. And and so he developed a test uh, uh, system that could read the... um, There were glass tubes that would read the neutron release uh, just before being destroyed, and they'd get the the reading on an oscilloscope so they could see if it worked or not. And he was doing that over and over again, which is probably why he got uh, uh, terminal kidney cancer and died at 74. But um, at any rate, he decided, seeing that the Germans were losing by uh, the fall of 1944, he started thinking that the reason he joined was not going to happen. He was told, you know, we're doing this because the Germans might get the bomb, as Eisenhower had warned uh, Roosevelt. But it didn't look that like that was going to happen anymore. The Germans were really getting beaten, and it was a matter of months before they would surrender. So he started thinking, hearing talk. I mean, there was a dinner uh, for the British scientists who had come over there, uh, at which uh, General Groves, the military head of the project, said to the assembled guys, well, you know, the target of is not, people said Germany's not going to get the bomb. And he said, well, you know, the reason for this bomb, the target of this bomb is not Germany, it's Russia. And that got around really quickly, because a lot of these scientists did not think Russia should be kept out of the project, because they were our ally during the war. But they were being kept totally in the dark, supposedly. We, we didn't know that they had a bunch of spies like Ted. But at the time that Ted decided to be a spy, they had nobody. They had nobody in the Manhattan Project, the Soviets. Now, that's kind and, of amazing. You just mentioned that you know, all the physics departments across the country were having a hard time finding anybody to teach physics. Um, and so that's, that's a huge number of people. And this this does sort of raise questions about the people who say, well, there couldn't ever be any conspiracies because nobody can ever keep a secret. Well, no, they had they had some people, but they weren't at Los Alamos, where the actual design of the bomb was going on. They had people at Hanford and they had people at Oak Ridge, but they did not have anybody at Los Alamos. I see. And when when Ted came, Ted so Ted had a vacation coming to him for two weeks, and the the bomb had been successfully figured out by then, so he got to take his two week leave. Everybody got a two week leave. On his birth, over his birthday, to go back to his family, he said. But meanwhile, he had plotted to, with his um, roommate at Harvard, Seville Sachs, who was a lefty uh, student, also from New York, 
and they had become roommates and hung out together and went to the John Reed Club and stuff at Harvard. And uh, so um, he called him up and he said, uh, I need your help. Uh, I want to make a connection with uh, Soviets. And I can't walk into the consulate because I'll, I'm, they've got my picture. The FBI's got my picture and, you know, I can't do that. So they worked out a plan where Seville would go into the uh, consulate saying he wanted to ask about his relatives. He, they were both Jewish. And, and he uh, wanted said he would ask about his relatives in Russia and whether they'd survived the German attack and because uh, he hadn't heard from them and so he was, that was his so in case they were tapping the phones that was his reason for going there and then he said when I get there I'll tell them what that you know what you are doing and you need to contact them and meanwhile and he got thrown out <laughs> and then Ted decided to go to Amtorg which was the uh, well first he yeah, that's it. He went to Amtrak, and which was the uh, trading uh, arm of the Soviet Union. You know, they would sell stuff so they could get money for the war effort, and also it was a nest of spies, and because uh, it gave good cover. You know, it was a business thing. So Ted went there thinking he would find a business guy and tell them what he knew, and then maybe they could get him in touch with Soviet intelligence. So he goes there. And the, it's in the garment district, you know, in those loft buildings in the 20s in Manhattan. So he goes up this freight elevator to Amtorg and walks in and he sees this guy packing crates in the in this sort of warehouse-like room. And the guy turns to him and says, yeah, can I help you? And it says, uh, yeah, I'm looking for someone, uh, you know, official at Amtorg. And the guy says, what for? And he says, he just tells him, he says, I'm... <laughs> I'm working on a secret weapon project and I need to uh tell the Russians about it because it's it's uh you know very dangerous thing and so the guy thought holy shit you know this is like I'm I'm not going to play this game but then he he said uh you know he wasn't going to introduce him to somebody who was actually KGB so he told him the name of a um Russian journalist named Kurnikov, Sergei Kurnikov, who was an old cavalry officer under the Tsar and fought with the white Russians in the Civil War, but then became a uh, fan of the new government. Uh, he fl- came to the U.S., and then while he was in the U.S., he became a fan of the Bolshevik government and eventually became a spy with the uh, Soviet spy network. And he was very good as a vetter of new people. So he... Uh, had Ted see him, and Ted was thinking, "Well, this is a big waste of time. I'm going to a guy who writes journalism, uh, and uh, you know, he was an older guy, and uh, and so he tells him. And uh, Kurnikov doesn't say, you know, look, I'm a spy. I can take these.' He says, uh, well, you know, I know, I know everybody in, you know, who's Russian in this city. Um, give them to me, and I'll see if I can get them into the hands of somebody who can do something with them." And so, you know, he, he looked at it and he thought, wow, geez, he, I mean, Ted told him a couple of things. He gave him a list of all the major scientists at Los Alamos, which was quite a, a, a huge list of all the greatest scientists in the world. They weren't Russian and or German and uh, or at least Nazi German. And and um, then he. Uh, also gave him a diagram of the bomb, like a hand-on diagram explaining how it worked, but it was not, you know, sort of crude. 
And uh, a cocktail napkin said, uh, diagram of, of a yeah, yeah. And he said, "Show this to any physicist, and they'll understand what it is." And um, so he gave it to him. That got sent back quickly to Moscow, and Moscow said, "Don't let this guy go." Right? They showed it to the Russian scientists. They said, "Don't let this guy go. You got to sign him up." So they did. They signed him up on that basis, sent him back, and told him, you know, that, that uh, and they did something really crazy. They said that Savvy Sachs, this uh, 20-year-old Harvard student, could be his courier. No training, you know. He would just go out there, and they made up a ruse that he was going to check out uh, the uh, University of New Mexico because he wanted to do a graduate work in uh, anthropology, right? So he came out and he met Ted and he got some some more stuff, like more important stuff, brought that back. And so the you know he was on a roll. He was he was uh, doing this stuff and he and ultimately, um, you know they gave him a professional courier, Lona Cohen, and um, you know that then he gave her like uh, thirty six pages of of details about the bomb. And what happened was you know because he gave them that. Uh, and later Fuchs gave them even more detail, they felt very confident with two different spies who they knew didn't know each other, who gave them the same wacky story about this crazy way to make a plutonium bomb. And so the head of the Russian bomb project, um, Igor Kurchatov, uh, looked at those plans and he said, you know what? We we have to just focus on making the plutonium bomb. We've got the plans. We can get the plutonium. We understand it now, how to do it. And so he went to Stalin, who was not somebody that you told something to and were wrong about. <laughs> and he told him, you know, uh, General Secretary Stalin, uh, or maybe it was uh, Field Marshal Stalin, I don't know what his title was, military title, but he said, uh, you know, I think that we have to stop trying to make the uranium bomb. We don't have uranium mines. We don't have the facilities to to, uh, isolate the amount of U-235 we need for a bomb, but we can make a plutonium bomb if we focus. We've got the plan. We've got the plutonium. We can do it. And Stalin, but he said, we need a lot of resources. And Stalin said, um, this is, this was a 36 year old guy, Korchatov. And Stalin said, okay, you've convinced me there. You can have whatever resources you need to do this. And, uh, so that was it. You know, they put it all into this and they, that's how they got their bomb so fast. So I so, say, so what, what what year was this? This was still back in that was 40, in 1945. 45, yeah. Um, yeah. After after the uh, I think it was uh, I think it was like February. He went to Stalin in 45, and of course you know it was all it, it was all even ramped up more after the um, the U.S. tested its bomb and after the two bombs dropped on Japan. I mean Russia was really worried. And so they really had a crash program. And right. and then, you know, then so then my my argument is that that, you know, Ted and and Fuchs saved Russia from having maybe 20 million people killed in a U.S. 
uh, bomb attack that would have happened in around 1951 when they were going to have more than 400 bombs. They had 450 bombs at the end of uh, 1950. So it was kind of a nick of time thing. Now, of course, it was you know, a nick of time thing, absolutely, yeah. because the you know the Russians, this U.S. estimate was the Russians would not get the bomb on their own for eight to ten years after the U.S. So that would have put it way past you know destruction time, and the and the U.S. had absolutely no idea that they were building a bomb. They knew they were working on it, on the idea, but they had no idea they were getting close or that they had had any spies in the. Uh, the first inkling they had that there were actual spies in Los Alamos was 1949, and that was Klaus Fuchs. He was the first one that was caught. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, I guess there's a controversy uh, about the you know the, some historians uh, seemingly argue that this. Uh, U.S. first strike plan to take out uh, the USSR's industrial capacity was actually somehow defensive, but I'm, I'm not quite sure how that could be. Uh, was actually a, what? Uh, defensive. That is, it was a. Uh, and I, I guess <laughs> the yeah right. In other words, they're, they're saying, "Oh no, we never would have like just had a sort of a an, you know a completely gratuitous first strike. This was you know in case of war or something like that." But but all it's of the plans, all be. of these plans that had names like like um, broiler, sizzle, um, drop shot. Um, what was the other one that that was like horrible? There were these horrible names that. Yeah, I mean, imagine broiler and sizzle. They, they they were talking about hundreds of bombs. The Russians had no bombs, and they they were talking about how many bombs they needed for each city. Like Moscow was going to get four. They were going to bomb Beijing in 1949, right after the country the revolution won, um, just because it was communist. If they attacked Russia, they also were going to bomb. Beijing, <laughs> right, and and uh, they they were definitely first strikes. They were designed to be first strikes. I mean, uh, they the whole premise was they were going in unannounced. They would catch the Russians, uh, uh, you know, not aware, and they'd come in with their bombers, yeah, which catch were them with easy their pants to, down, as General Jack T. Ripper put yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, look, the, 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 these are bombers would have been knocked down by fighters if the Russians were prepared for it. So, you know, they, they, it wasn't like they were flying higher than the fighters could fly, and they're slower than fighters. You know, and, and so it, it was, these, this was not ICBM stuff. This wasn't, you know, pinpoint accuracy ICBMs like it is now, which are also first strike weapons, by the way. Um, I mean, I, I would I would note that the the accuracy of the Trident missiles and the Trident submarines are um, within I think it's a hundred feet of the target. The only reason that you need a, a missile to be that accurate with a three hundred kiloton warhead, and they have like they carry a, I think six to ten independently targetable warheads each, um, is because you want to hit the missile in the silo. I mean, what's the point in hitting an empty silo? Zero point. 
Yeah, this seems to be kind of the, the big secret of the nuclear era that you know, American people are told that it's all a deterrent. It's all about having a second strike capability. But the reality has been a first strike doctrine from the get go. That's never. Absolutely. Been, yeah. Look, look, you know how simple it is to build a big rocket? I mean, the U.S. can build big rockets. Look at the Saturn. I mean, if we wanted to, if if we wanted to have a retaliation against the Russians, we'd just make big, big rockets, and they would uh, destroy the U.S. by big bombs hitting cities. You know, they don't have to be accurate. They they're cheap. They'd be cheap to make, and uh, you wouldn't need that many of them because you'd be putting a 15 megaton bomb on each one, right? So. Uh, you don't need that many bombs. You don't need that many rockets. You can have duplicates, so you got a backup, you know, and that's a pretty good retaliatory uh, threat. But uh, what what we did was we built Minuteman missiles that could be launched, uh, you know, really quickly, and that would also have pinpoint accuracy. And those, by the way, this is an interesting aside, those were designed by Ted's older brother. <laughs> <laughs> That's another story, but um, which has bearing on why Ted never got arrested. But um, the the um, missiles that the Russians made—they remember. Remember, if you're old enough to remember the uh, missile gap and how the Russians had the big missiles, and we had well, the I, missiles. actually, I was a little little too young for that. I was born in, in '59, so I was I was. Oh born yeah, you're too young for it. There, yeah. That was, you know, when you were born, that was the missile gap thing with the Kennedy. And yeah. the big thing they were saying was the Russians have these big missiles and we have these little puny missiles. And it was sort of penis envy, you know, we yeah. like that's, we used to joke about it. But um, actually, what it was was that the Russians couldn't make the small, accurate missiles because they didn't have the same computer technology the U.S. had at that time. And so the Russians opted for big clunky missiles with big bombs and so they were doing the retaliation thing and saying you know right. like and, okay, and a lot well, of them were, were empty silos in, in fact that was in D daniel ellsberg's book on this he talks about how there was that crisis in the early 60s you know culminating in things like the, the cuban missile crisis because that the u.s had discovered that the russian uh, capability was actually not nearly as robust as it seemed because most of their silos were actually empty, which led to a situation where the Dr. Strangeloves on the American side could say, hey, you know, if we if we hit them first, we'll only lose 20 million people tops and this sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, they did. They did say things like that. They, they actually did say things like that. I mean, Ellsberg I heard them say it. Twenty million. How many can we afford, should we uh, be willing to lose in a uh, first strike on Russia? And you know, people are saying twenty million. And you know, some people say that's insane, and other people say, no, that's reasonable. You can recover from that. You know, it was it was ridiculous. And by the way, I had the I I got the drop shot plan, uh, which was the plan for the fifties, and it got updated. You know, through the decade. Uh, with more missiles, more targets, and uh, it listed the number of missiles used and the type of bombs to use, and most of them were thermonuclear by the mid-50s. And um, they would list the targets uh, for a city, you know, like if they said uh, Nova Sibirsk, say, a uh, big city in Siberia, and uh, that was going to get hit with 
a thermonuclear weapon, and it said targets, and it listed uh, steel industry, um, railway junction, population. That was a target, population. <laughs> and, right. and most of the big cities listed population as a target. So this was our great country, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember you know, Ellsberg describing his shock when he, you know, at the Rand Corporation's job was to look at the, the nuclear warfighting plans. And all we really had was the minute that a shooting war breaks out with Russia, we're going to murder maybe, you know, hundreds of millions of people and hit every city in Russia, every city in China, even though China's not even involved. And that then the authorization to actually fire nuclear weapons ends up not being tightly, closely held at the White House in the nuclear briefcase. No, it's case. right on the base commanders. It's all over the and, place, yeah. <laughs> and, and even the guy flying the plane had the final decision whether to do it or not. Yeah, so, yeah, it was, it was kind of nuts. I mean, it's, hard, yeah, it's sort totally, of hard to believe totally that. Nuts. Yeah, how, how did the planet survive this period? How, how are we here to talk about this? <laughs> well, I think with the reason we're here to talk about it is because what Ted Hall and, and uh, Klaus Fuchs did was they gave us mad. It wasn't their intent. You know, like they, Ted, Ted actually said when I, when I uh, talked to his wife and saw a tape he had made, which we used in our film. I'm doing a film on this that's coming out. Uh, it's going to be shown on a uh, world premiere at Venice Festival on September 2nd. And then at the Telluride Festival, on, Festival it'll be a U.S. premiere on September 3rd. Um, that, that, uh, you know, we have a tape of Ted talking a year before he died, explaining what he did and why. And and one of the things he said was on that tape was that, um, you know, he he felt that, uh, you know, if there was, you know, a, a uh, standoff between Russia and the United States with neither one able to attack the other uh, because they both had nuclear weapons, that you know they would see that the weapon that nuclear weapons were uh, useless and they would move to ban them well all the countries of the world practically have now banned the bomb, voted to ban the bomb uh under the UN charter and the only countries that really have not voted yes to ban the bomb on that um, law which now is in effect nuclear weapons are illegal um it was the nine countries that have nuclear weapons they all voted no. So, um, you know, it's sort of like with landmines and with, you know, other things that are illegal or things that are illegal that the U.S. and Russia and China vote no on. But um, at any rate, um, you know, it, it, it's uh, absolutely true that the U.S. has a first strike policy. And that its weapons are designed for first strikes. The, the F-35 is a stealth bomber. Um, why on earth would you need a stealth bomber um, to to like go in to a country after a war? Right? You fired your missiles. Now you're going to go in and, and clean up the mess with some some little bombs to hit specific targets because it only carries two. Uh, uh, I think it's a uh, adjustable B-51 bomb that can go from five kilotons to uh, either 50 kilotons or 300 kilotons. I can't remember which, but it's not a big bomb. It's not a megaton bomb, and uh, and they have two of them, 
And so what it's for is actually a first strike to try to decapitate the uh, leadership, hit the main bases near Europe. You know, it can't fly very far, um, but it's a stealth fighter. If the stealth works, if it's not raining, they can fly in low, they can not be missed by radar, and they can drop their two bombs, which are, uh, you know, highly pinpoint accuracy bombs, and guided bombs. And uh, and those those are for strike weapons. They don't. It's not any good as a fighter. And all the you know, contrary to what Bernie Sanders says about the the, the F thirty fives that he managed to get uh, used with his National Guard in Vermont at the Burlington Airport, is that uh, you know he says it's a fighter. It's a fighter. It's actually a bomber. And every single F thirty five in the Air Force uh, is getting upgraded to carry those bombs they're putting they're changing the fairings on the side of the planes uh and making them larger with bomb base so that they can drop these two b-51 bombs so uh why would you need those i mean you can't drop those bombs anywhere near the united states well the idea is that the bombs will be stored in frontline countries near russia like uh poland and and Czechoslovakia, and if they can win the war in Ukraine, in Ukraine, and then uh, in a in a crisis, they'll take hundreds of F-35s and fly them, you know, with uh, the help of tanker planes uh, across the Atlantic and land them uh, in those forward bases and where they can carry the their two bomb load, uh, you know, payloads into Russia at high speed and uh, stealth and hit targets it's the first strike weapon so the u.s posture again has consistently been first strike uh the russian posture has consistently been retaliation it seems but this u.s provocation of russia through these incessant first strike plans and bringing in new technologies to try to threaten them and putting up anti-missile systems so that if you did knock out almost all of the Russian missiles, there were only a few trying to get through, maybe you could stop them or most of them. So all, all of these first strike provocations seem like what they've actually accomplished now is that the Russians have had to create really horrific retaliatory weapons. You know, during the, I, I, there's a, uh, a book on the germ warfare issue that uh, has, it's by what, Mangrove and somebody uh, talking about the way the, the Russians uh, during the Cold War, and this probably still exists, they had huge stocks of horrific biological weapons that they were stuffing in warheads for these, these big ICBMs, and they had enough to basically make the U.S. uninhabitable from biological <laughs> weapons alone. Uh, and now they've got the uh, the radioactive tidal wave generator, these uh, torpedoes that totally can't be stopped, that could utterly eliminate or inundate the both American seaboards, take out all cities anywhere near any coasts, uh, and make them permanently uninhabitable. So, you know, we've done a great job in provoking the doomsday machine. Which is kind well, of just taking the, back to just Dr. The <laughs> just the hypersonic missiles is a good example. Those are, again, a retaliatory weapon because they they take so long to get to their targets from you know going you know in transcontinental that w once you've launched them, it gives the other country plenty of warning time to uh, shoot back. Right. I mean, they're, they're unstoppable pretty much, but they definitely give the other side time to shoot back. So the, the whole purpose of the 
Russians making these hypersonic weapons, which are very, you know. Hello. Yeah. Hi, Dave. Yeah. Did you, yeah. I, I unplugged you for. I unplugged something. Um, the the uh, hypersonic missiles are, you know, they travel at Mach six or something like that, and that's pretty fast. But it's and, and hard to knock down, especially if they can maneuver and go close to the ground. But uh, they give a lot of warning time. But it, they also, if they are, as we read, um, guided by AI, so that they can fly. Uh, to alternate targets, uh, if they see that one target's been hit, they can kind of think for themselves where to go, uh, and, they, and they can pick routes that make that are the safest, avoid uh, interceptors, things like that. Um, they're going to get through, and so they're a real deterrent because if a first strike hits uh, hits Russia, they'll get them off, and then the U.S. won't be able to stop them, and so you know you get both countries destroyed. So it's a defensive weapon, not an offensive weapon, as the U.S. media present it. The offensive weapon is something like the Trident. There's no denying it. And the the Trident is presented as the ultimate retaliatory weapon because they say the Russians can't find our subs. They don't know where we are. So, you know, if they attack us, then they won't be able to stop us from firing back all these Trident missiles. But that's stupid. You know, we got Minuteman missiles that'll fire back. We don't have to have these hugely expensive multi-billion-dollar submarines um, that are, uh, you know, at sea all the time, and um, you know these hugely accurate tridents that have to be good enough to hit within a hundred feet of empty silos. That's stupid too. So, you know, we're we're being misled. This this is the primary. Uh, Martin Luther King had it right in Riverside. The United States is the number one purveyor of violence and war in the world, period. Yep. Uh, Yeah, it's really undeniable. And it's kind of sad, you know, as a U.S. American to face the fact that maybe our real heroes are the people like Ted Hall that would be considered traitors by the establishment, that, you know, maybe... Uh, the whole picture that we're given by the official media and the government is kind of upside down. And then the question becomes, well, what do we do about it? And, uh, well, well we you know how I, you, you know how I got onto this story? No. I was, I was writing one of my periodic commemorations of, of, uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was 2017. And I, I, um, thought I, gee, I wonder, I wonder, um, what who what these spies were thinking when they were spying for the bomb and I looked them up and I found this pimply faced kid in the the uh, rogues gallery of Soviet spies and I looked him up and I saw what he had done and it was like you know it was, it was written up that he had decided to be a spy to prevent a monopoly you know and I thought wow you know he should and then I learned I knew about Fuchs but I read a little about Fuchs because it said that they gave the same information so I read about him he was a German. Uh, young German communist who fled the Gestapo uh, because of his anti-Nazi activities in 1933 and went to England and super, super brilliant physicist and got hired onto the Manhattan Project incredibly. Uh, so, so, and became the head of the British bomb project after the war. 
and and I, so I said, you know, these two guys are both like ex- extremely heroic, and we they should they should get a Nobel Peace Prize posthumously, the two of them. And uh, how, how long I, will I it wrote, be? You think before that happens? <laughs> they don't give posthumous awards. I found out, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I. So anyway, I, I uh, yeah, wrote that article, and, and I it ran on Counterpunch, and I got two weeks later a letter, said, "Dear Dave, I'm reading your letter with tears in my eyes. I'm Ted's widow, um, and uh, you're the first journalist who got him." And so I, you know, I started talking with her. I went and met her. My wife and I went and visited her in Cambridge, England, and it was all from there. What, what a story. Well, thank you so much for, for breaking this uh, amazing story, Dave. And I think, I think the American people learned about this first strike policy. Um, I don't think they would tolerate it. Uh, I can't imagine why anybody does. Anyway, thank you so much. Keep up the great work. God bless. And look forward to having Thanks you Thanks for having me on, Kevin. Back to the next one. Right 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 back to the